0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Show here on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132. This is your host, George Perry, and I'm a Wharton alum, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Michelle Young, who's with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. We're here every Tuesday live at 4 o'clock Eastern and repeated throughout the week. Michelle, how are you doing this week?
1: Doing all right. How about you, George?
0: Can't complain. Uh, we we weren't able to be live last week. But we're back to back. Glad to be back in studio and live. And uh, and while a lot of people think this is a dead sports time, uh, you know, you've just got baseball. Uh, we have no uh, lack of things to talk about today. Um, and we are going to have a couple of great guests as we usually do here. Uh, in the first part of the show, we'll have Austin Carp, who's the assistant manager editor at the Sports Business Journal. He's going to give us a little bit of a recap on uh, the, the World Cup ratings, uh, Major League Baseball, their current ratings, and some some impact that had on the All-Star Game and the, and the Home Run Derby, uh, and maybe even talk a little bit about the NBA and where that's going with the Summer League and things like that. Um, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to have uh, Tony Punturo, uh, who is the uh, EVP of Strategy at Turnkey Intelligence and a... Former VP of Global Media, Sports, and Entertainment at Anheuser-Busch. He was with AB for 26 years, and many people consider him a legend in the sports. But before we get to our guests, uh, let's talk about uh, the news of the week. And and actually, just before we got on air, there was some some really big news uh, uh, regarding the NBA and uh, MGM. Uh, You want to tell us about that, Michelle?
1: Huge announcement came from the NBA today. They've become the first major U.S. sports league to sign an official betting sponsor, So in the past few weeks, we've been talking about legalizing sports betting and gambling and what that's going to mean for the leagues. And here we are, uh, not even in season, the NBA announces this deal when it's pegged to be for three years and at least $25 million.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and it's not surprising that the NBA is the first one to to have a deal with a a casino like this. Uh, Andy Silver has... uh, the commissioner has um, Adam Silver. The commissioner has always uh, been a big proponent of you know legalized gambling. Um, as far as you know, it, it's it's legalized in Europe and 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 you can control it and even make some money on it. And uh, a lot of the talk had been about uh, these integrity fees, and that's how the league should be making money because uh, you know they they're the ones that had that they're still betting on their games that they're putting on. A lot of controversy about that, but this is certainly a, a revenue stream that there's no controversy about. Now that betting's legal, you can sell sponsorships to uh, to gambling sites and and casinos and the like.
1: Yeah, and uh, allowing the use of the league logos and team names on boards at the MGM casinos is is huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes. The, the, so now we're aligning gambling with the league, with their league marks, with their IP, the intellectual property. Um, on their app, on their betting app, uh, they're even going to be allowed to, to put in put on add highlights to their app. Uh, the MGM app will have NBA highlights, um, and so you got to believe the dominoes are just going to start falling. Now, uh, all the other leagues are going to follow suit. They're going to find other casinos. They're going to find other betting organizations. MGM's clearly getting ahead of things. Last last just on Monday, uh, they announced a deal with a European betting. Uh, online betting company, uh, and together they're going to do a joint venture, and they're putting up $100 million each uh, to set up an online uh, gambling site for sports betting, uh, specifically in the U.S., so uh, amazing stuff there.
1: Yeah, that was a huge deal, and no surprise that once that was announced, now this felt right in here today. Um, Other major news with the leagues, uh, which is a story we've been continuing to follow with the NFL and the anthem protest, and Now, some owners and teams and players have been making statements um, at the same time where the NFL Players Association has been trying to be in talks with the NFL about the anthem policy.
0: Yeah, you know, this is this is the story that just won't go away. Uh, which is fine for us we 're happy to talk about it, but I think uh, a lot of people in the league and even some of the fans would like to see it go away or get resolved I should say um and, and just to reset for some some of our listeners uh as we know there's there 's been this challenge with uh, there's been a challenge with uh players uh kneeling during the anthem um protesting um some some concerns they have uh with, in, in, in social concerns they have and um And basically, you know, last couple months ago, even the league had basically said, you know what, Uh, people, the players can either stay in the locker room, or but if they come out, then they need to stand for the anthem, and um, and then, but they did it without consulting the NFLPA. NFLPA came back and said, hey, wait a second, let's let's talk about this. So they agreed to kind of suspend the policy and until they could resolve it. Well, Jerry Jones uh, and and uh, and his son. Um, both, basically, Stephen, Stephen Jones came out and said, hey, if you want to be a Dallas Cowboy, uh, you're going to have to stand for the anthem. You're going to need to toe the line. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty interesting, gutsy move there um, because what if?
1: Right. Exactly. But his players, you know, Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott, said they didn't have an issue with it. They're going to stand if they need to. And then, of course, some of the other more vocal and active players, Malcolm Jenkins with the Eagles, just, you know, they have... Said that they disagree. They have protested in the past, um, and they did not agree with Jones' statement. Of course, calling him a bully and such.
0: And, and we are the Wharton Sports Business Show, so I always like to think of what what's the business impact here. I, you know, I gotta believe either either Jerry Jones, you know, the Jones family has so much money they really don't care if. Uh, Fans that that are you know supporting the players and the right to protest decide they don't no longer want to be Cowboys fans, no longer want to buy their merchandise, no longer want to go to games, or else he did do some research and determine that that fan base is very much uh, behind what they're doing and whatever they say is gospel. Um, because you know these types of when you take a stance like this in sports, um, you know you can do it and it's important, but you got to know that there may may potentially be some some business ramifications. Um, so.
1: Right, and we'll continue to follow this with preseason games starting, um, what, in a week and a half, a couple of weeks? Uh, hopefully the NFL and the NFL Players Association will be able to come to some sort of agreement and resolution to this. Yeah, because
0: I think most fans uh, at this point just want to watch the game and they don't want to be bothered by this. Um, but but it's still important to the players, uh, important to the owners and As we've talked about in the past, the president has has made it a big issue as well. Um, So it's not it's not it's definitely staying in the news. Um, So remains to be seen. But speaking of football um, and and licensing in the business of football, uh, it's amazing what a Super Bowl win can do for your Eagles merchandise in this case.
1: Exactly. Some numbers came out with jersey sales and um, Nick Foles was the number one selling um, popular player. Um, in merchandise.
0: Wait, Nick Foles, the backup quarterback,
1: correct? That was
0: barely in the league last year, and then became Super Bowl MVP, and now he's the top selling jersey over Tom Brady. Right, amazing. Uh, you know those jerseys aren't cheap; <laughs> they're like three hundred bucks a piece, and uh, most people try to find a player who's probably going to be with that team for a long time. Like I would have thought Carson Wentz, but. Uh, I guess people wanted that souvenir. Uh, they, they were very, obviously the fans were very excited that Nick Foles uh, uh, brought them to a championship, and and uh, he's getting paid handsomely for that.
1: Well, and it should also be noted on this list, so we've got Nick Foles, number one, Tom Brady, number two, Carson Wentz, three, and number four. Do you have any guesses who that might be?
0: Uh, I wouldn't have guessed this.
1: You, you would think it was a player that has been playing in the league for a few years at least, but... Um, We've got a, f- a draft pick here for the Giants, Saquon Barkley from Penn State, um, immensely popular, and he's on number four on the list in front of Dak Prescott.
0: Well, and and he wasn't the number one pick either. He was, uh, I believe the number two pick That's for right. the New York Giants. That's right. Um, but the New York market, right? You can't underestimate that as well. And 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 uh, so here you have this rookie running back who hope you know is hopefully going to take off for the Giants fans and and uh they've added that and and just to pe- just so people know, you know, not all of that money goes to the player. Um actually player jerseys there, there's a lot of different uh different sources that make money. So you've got the NFL Players Association which will get a cut of each jersey sale. They distribute dollars based on their agreement with each of the players and with Nick Foles in particular for for his jersey. Uh the NFL, the league makes money because there's an NFL shield on the uh jerseys and they own that trademark uh and the Philadelphia Eagles in the case of Nick Foles will make money as well. So, um still making a lot of money but it's split in a number of different uh pieces and of course the manufacturer uh Adidas or Reebok I, I think it's Adidas now. I can't remember. Maybe it's Nike <laughs> who's the the league uh the league jersey uh and and so they'll they'll obviously make some money as well. So it's it's interesting to see that um you know a couple other interesting facts Uh, The Eagles, seven of the top 50 spots uh, in the rankings were Eagles players, and that's more than double the amount of of any other team. So winning a Super Bowl just keeps on giving, keeps on giving.
1: And you know what? Just a little follow-up on this. I just saw today that NBC announced um, some of the players that would be on with their um, football spots – with Carrie Underwood and the intros to that Sunday Night Football, um, and four of them are Eagles. I think it was about four out of eight of them. So, like you said, winning the Super Bowl does major star power and um, some money to issues there too.
0: Well, they are they are the team of the moment for now. But uh, training campus camps have started across the league. Uh, you can hear the radio waves full of uh, training camp visits and the like. Of course, every team now thinks they have a chance to win the Super Bowl because they do. Uh, even the Cleveland Browns might win a few more games this year. Let's switch gears to something I have to admit I'm, I'm no expert in, but uh, but I'm certainly trying to be. And um, at some point, we should probably get a, an expert on this show. But uh, And that's eSports. And there was a big event. at the Barclays um, Barclays Center recently, and that is the Overwatch League Championship at at the Barclays Center.
1: Yeah, so this past weekend at Barclays was the... So the Overwatch League um, are teams that have permanent franchises that represent cities across the globe. So the finalists were actually a team from Philadelphia, Philadelphia Fusion, who are considered the underdog fitting for a Philadelphia team, and London Spitfire um, and London Spitfire went on to beat the Fusion in that tournament.
0: Yep, and and uh, there were eleven thousand seats, and they were both sold out. Uh, uh, two days, so it was a two day tournament. Right. Eleven thousand seats sold out, so twenty two thousand fans to watch twelve players play video games on a big screen. As far as the players concerned, all you could see was their heads sticking out over the over the chair. And, uh, but then there were three hundred ten thousand people that watched this on Twitch, right. which is is where these these leagues and these game uh, competitions are streamed quite a bit. Um, a little bit about the teams that I learned. So the London team was made up of six Korean players, uh, and the Philadelphia player was made up of teams from five different countries, and. Even though they're the Philadelphia Fusion and the London Spitfire, right now they're not based in those cities. They're actually based in L.A. All of the teams in this league are based in L.A. Right. this year and next year. Um, and, and this is the there's, there's some interesting owners of this league, um, and that is uh, Robert, uh, Robert Kraft, Jonathan Kraft of the Patriots, uh, Fred Wilpon, of, uh, who owns the Mets, uh, and, and Kroenke, who owns the Nuggets and the Rams. And in... If I understand correctly, the, the idea here is you have these games and these leagues for these games and these players that are mostly watched streaming or occasionally there's a uh, there's an event where, where people will watch it live. But this is the kind of the first time. The idea here is let's attach these teams to an actual city yep. and eventually base those teams in those cities and earn all that additional revenue and bring in some casual fans who – might otherwise not be into gaming. But if they know it's the Philadelphia Fusion, that's our team, they may be more likely to buy merchandise, uh, to to watch them, those kind of things.
1: You're exactly right. And like you said, we'll get an expert in here to talk about this, but eSports is big business. This weekend's team was playing for the first championship, a trophy, and a $1 million bonus. Not to mention that some of the money these players make playing these games and getting sponsorships and such for that – It's it's uncomprehensible, actually.
0: Well, and yes, some of the numbers I I looked at, I found were 900 million spent on eSports last year. And they expect that to double uh, over the next three years. Fortnite, which is the big game right now, has one hundred and twenty five million players and over a million dollars a day is spent on that game alone. So um, it's not something that people can ignore anymore. It, It doesn't appear to be a fad. Um, and it could be, it could be, and because it's young kids that are playing it and young kids that, you know, I have a nephew who's 12 year, you know, 12 years old and spends hours and hours watching, uh, gamers online all day, you know, he's going to grow up and his kids are going to watch games and, and that's how they're going to experience sports. So sponsors need to get in line, investors need to get in line uh, because this this thing is is coming. And, and, oh, by the way, there's some athletes that are uh, investing in this esports phenomena as well.
1: Right. We're seeing a crossover and, you know, Steph Curry is getting in on the whole esports game. Um, He's part of an investment group that's provided $37 million to an esports organization called TSM. Um, and its founder is also is with Andy Din, according to um, Forbes. So there's a there's a lot of um, overlap with the NBA and esports, and I think some of the other players and, as you mentioned before, owners are getting involved as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the Sixers have a team. The the, the Wizards, I think, have an investment in a team. Um, there's there's uh, athletes that have that have bought into esports. Whether it's a Rod Shack, Marshawn Lynch. Michael Strahan, uh, Mark Cuban, um, so these are all very successful people, so I think, uh, I think I know where my next investment needs to be. <laughs> um, but uh, we are going to switch here, and our first guest is on the line and ready to talk to us a little bit about uh, World Cup viewership, Major League Baseball viewership, uh, NBA Summer League, uh, and the like, so I'd like to bring on Austin Carp, Assistant Managing Editor of at the Sports Business Journal. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I Just remind the audience, we are listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM 132, and we're speaking with Austin uh, Karp of the Sports Business Journal. Austin, I know the World Cup was a, a few weeks ago, but, uh, but we'd love to kind of get your take on you know, what the prospects were going into the World Cup and, and how things turned out, in your opinion.
2: Well, I guess you kind of want to start with when the U.S. team didn't qualify. I mean, that had to be a huge bummer for Fox Sports, considering it was their first go. They paid a lot of money for this event, a lot more than ESPN uh, was paying, you know, four years ago, eight years ago. And, uh, you know, the results were kind of what you would expect without that U.S. team, without those three games uh, involving in U.S. men's national team, possibly a fourth game if they had made it to the knockout stages. And, you know, for the entire tournament, they were down around 33%. And also a lot of that has to do – with the time zone changes. Um, Four years ago, you had Brazil, which was more conducive to a U.S. audience, later matches. Um, This year, from Russia, it was kind of more like eight years ago with South Africa, where a lot of early, early morning matches, particularly during that group stage. And, you know, Fox uh, and uh, Telemundo got hit pretty bad early on with some of those early matches, and they started to pick it up later in the group stages and then in some of the knockout rounds, but the hole was just too big for them to dig out of.
1: So looking at it, what do you think that Fox did well, or, or what did they struggle with?
2: I, th- I think it was just the lack of the U.S. team. Um, their, their coverage was, was good. The announcers were good. Um, and I, I think, you know, for, especially for a first go at it, they they really put all their resources, uh, you know, as many resources as they could into it. And they're going to take what they learned from this year, and they're going to look toward four years from now, which is, uh, you know, no cakewalk either when the uh, the event's in Qatar because not only is that event also seven hours ahead of U.S. time zone, uh, East Coast. But uh, you're going to be you're talking about a World Cup now in the winter, which is a particular problem going up against uh, college and NFL football there in late November, early December.
0: And can you remind the audience why it's why it's there in the winter?
2: Uh, well, it, it was when Qatar originally won the rights for it, um, they, it was supposed to be a summer event. Then you know, obviously there's some. You know, background dealings that go on uh, with, with FIFA, and then the event ended up moving to the winter because, honestly, the summer in Qatar is just incredibly hot. And as I guess as part of that, uh, uh, Fox is also awarded a right to the 2026 World Cup, um, which will be in, the, in North America, so that will actually be better for them.
0: And so is it conceivable then that uh, you know Fox will be able to make up some of these losses here this year, uh, particularly if they've got the 2026 games uh, here in North America?
2: Oh yeah, in 2026 for sure. When you're talking about you, you'll have Mexico, Canada, U.S. Uh, autom- automatically qualifying. Plus, you'll have a you know a larger event. Um, but four years from now, you know you you may also have a an expanded event, ex- an uh, expanded number of teams. So, if the U.S. qualifies for that, then you're you're talking about pretty much a guarantee that you're going to see an uptick from the 2018 numbers.
1: Zarin, do you have any idea um, if out-of-home ratings are factored into those numbers that we saw, and if so, can you can you explain what those are to our audience?
2: Yeah, no, um, out-of-home was actually not factored into these numbers, or the numbers that we originally reported. That's generally involving, you know, uh, Nielsen subscribe or Nielsen homes that Nielsen is kind of paying, and it also includes some of the streaming numbers that they get. Um, which was actually larger considering, like we talked about, those early time zones, um, so early games, so people were actually streaming them maybe from work or at home. Um, but the at of home and, and when you talk about something like the World Cup, it's almost equivalent to, like, Super Bowl-type stuff where you get large gatherings. I remember, you know, four years ago for U.S. men's matches, it was impossible to get a seat at any bar, and, you know, that's in Charlotte, North Carolina. So when you add in some of these out-of-home numbers, then you're talking about, you know, depending on who you talk to, it could be anywhere from, Twenty, thirty, thirty-five percent uptick for these large gatherings for World Cup events.
0: And and when you say, depending on who you talk to, I mean, is there anybody that does try to measure this out of home
2: uh, number? It's it's, uh, Nielsen. It's definitely something Nielsen does right now, and they're actually getting it turned around quicker. You might see them turn around faster numbers during the NFL season. So, like when Sunday Night Football comes out, you know, you'll see a number come out on Monday or Tuesday. Then maybe even by Wednesday, Thursday, you might see that, okay, it's a 10 to 20% uptick because we all know that, you know, people are definitely gathered at bars and restaurants all across the country, you know, for those Sunday afternoon games.
1: Can we switch gears a little bit here and talk about Major League Baseball? Um, Coming off of All-Star break, you know, ratings have been a really big focus so far this season. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they compare to years past? Uh,
2: Sure. Just, um, you know, Let's look at it first from a regional sports net angle because that's where the majority of the baseball is being consumed or on these local nets. And I'd say it's a you know a mixed bag right now. I think we reported in the Sports Business Journal that around 15 of those RSNs are seeing gains, 14 are down, at least in the U.S. Um, obviously, Toronto not measured in the U.S. Um, but some of the – I mean, what you see reflected in the attendance is, is kind of being reflected in the ratings. The, the top teams are seeing big games big gains like the the Braves and the Yankees are seeing incredible RSN numbers but then you see a team like you know the Orioles or or the Royals are you know they're just not seeing the return on the RSNs, and that's reflected in the gate as well
0: so um and how does that I mean how does that balance out across the league or or is it I mean you know aren't some of the the larger market teams kind of holding the other smaller market teams up
2: yeah, I mean you're definitely seeing a lot of that season this season, and uh, you know it's why a network like ESPN back is backloaded that Sunday night baseball schedule with a lot of Red Sox Yankees. So as they compete for you know that top spot in the AL East, you'll see a lot of that on Sunday nights going into the back half of the season. You'll see FS1 pick up some of those, and Fox in their regional coverage, as well as uh, TBS on some of those uh, Sunday afternoon games that they uh, they simulcast.
1: Is there anything that they could be doing better to position themselves for? Um better viewership
2: you know it's tough I mean, around the all-star game you heard a lot about oh why isn't Mike Trout being marketed better you know he needs to be the face of the game and that's something they're lacking right now is you have a lot of incredible talent but I don't know if many casual sports fans can identify Manny Machado in a lineup and he's going to set a record for, possibly for an MLB contract deal this coming off-season. so they kind of have a, a little bit of an issue to work through as far as visibility of their top players.
0: So who are the most, the highest rated teams? And you mentioned uh, the Yankees and the Braves. I mean, is it your usual suspects, the Red Sox and, and the mm-hmm. L.A. teams and just the big market teams? Or is it, is it more a function of uh, performance on the field or kind of a combination of both?
2: Uh, this season, in particular, I think you're seeing exactly what you referred to—that the larger teams are carrying it. You're seeing really nice numbers for the Red Sox on NESN, for the Yankees on YES Network. I mean, the Braves are kind of a surprise story. No one expected that young team to be performing so well. But FS Southeast is doing incredibly well, and just the, the Dodgers—you know—probably would have been doing a little better. But nobody, or very few people, in the LA market can actually see those games on the RSN because it's not carried. Uh, it doesn't have a high penetration rate. That regional sports net.
0: Now, are we seeing a trend? Is baseball still kind of a TV sport that people want to watch? Or are we seeing a trend towards people, people watching the games uh, on their computers and, and cutting the cords on those games?
2: It's, it's still a TV sport. I mean, I mean sport, the, the overwhelming majority of people still watch sports on their TV. Now, the trend is going towards these you know, streaming packages, whether it's MLB.tv or streaming the regional sports nets. But, I mean, that's still a, a fraction of the audience that you get from the, the linear TV audience.
0: So uh so talk a little bit about, if you could cuz you talked about one marketable you know you talked about marketable players and one that's been marketable although he's having a down season is Bryce Harper. Um but he was in the Home Run Derby, he won the Home Run Derby. Uh certainly that was a big deal in DC. Um what what were the ratings like uh, for the Home Run Derby and, and the All-Star game?
2: Yeah, like you said Harper was there and he won and but you know Going into the Derby, one of the biggest things people were complaining about was, yeah, you had your Harper and maybe Kyle Schwarber as far as household names, but beyond that, it was, it was a lot of who are these sorts of guys, and that was definitely reflected in the viewership. It was down around, I think, 32% from last year when you had some of the bigger names, like you know the Yankees uh, had um, Aaron Judge, and everyone knew who Aaron Judge, even though he was a rookie. Everyone knew who he was because he plays in New York, and they knew him coming into the game. So it was around, I think it was like the second lowest uh, derby on record. So it, it did kind of hurt that you didn't have those household names. Now, it's also needed to be kept in perspective that while it was down, it, it's still a relatively strong product on TV. Like, you know, getting 5.5 million viewers is, you know, it, it's no slouch. And uh, it, it's still a you know strong property.
1: And the All-Star Game itself, the viewership was low as well. But I think I did see, and maybe you can speak to it, that... It did spike when it went into extra innings.
2: I would say people, some people actually may have left because they know it's an exhibition. It's not like an all, uh, you're, you're traditionally going to be correct when you talk about that, when it goes into overtime or extra innings, that, oh, more people tune in because they want to see who won. But, it, you know, everyone knowing that this is an exhibition, you know, I'm not sure if anyone wants to stay up past midnight to watch a, You know, an exhibition in that sense, and it ended up being the lowest-rated or least-viewed MLB All-Star game on record. And they've done that now two out of the last three years. But, again, you know, it continues to be like a primetime type of winner for Fox and, you know, continue to be a strong property during a time of year when there's not a lot of, you know, key programming on, particularly on broadcast TV.
0: So, Austin, you mentioned that the the Home Run Derby still had, even though it was a lower number, it's still a big number, 5.5 million. Um, So are you of the, you know, it's kind of run run its course. Maybe they need to find something different, some sort of a skills competition or something like that. Um, or, or do you believe that, that the Home Run Derby still has, still has legs?
2: I think it still has legs. It's just, honestly, just from year to year depends on who you get. I mean, we have this conversation every year with the dunk contest, so it's, it's similar to that, and what can they do to maybe switch it up? But it's, it's still a strong enough audience that I don't think you need to take it away or, um, or make it like an every-other-year sort of thing. It, it's, it's still a respectable number that ESPN is getting for that event.
1: If you have to forecast a little bit, looking at the playoffs and the World Series, do you think those numbers will rebound?
2: I think they're going to get incredibly strong numbers because of the markets that we talked about before. If you're yeah. having the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers and maybe the Phillies or the Braves, those are just some of the key markets out in MLB. And honestly, MLB numbers are very market-driven, particularly in the playoffs. I mean – uh, if you put the Yankees and the Red Sox in the ALCS after such a long layoff on that matchup in the playoffs, you're going to see some really strong numbers for either Turner or Fox, whoever has that matchup.
0: So you're listening to the Warden Sports Business Show on Sirius XM 132. We're speaking with Austin Karp of the Sports Business Journal. Uh, Austin, um, the other uh, sport that, it's, even though it's off season, uh, that seems to be getting a lot of pub and and, and even some uh you know some content during the summer that maybe that is just they haven 't really had in the past uh is the n b a can you talk a little bit about the uh the n b a summer league and the and the big three and and how those are are doing from a from a TV perspective
2: yeah i mean like we talked about you're seeing right i mean right now at the time of year on summer where there's you know not a lot going on uh you there's no college in season, so you need tonnage to fill up the schedules and so what you've seen over the last couple of years are you know particularly when you have the introduction of networks like fox sports one and nbc sports network they're looking for content and so you have like the basketball tournament big three summer league and espn and those networks are really you know have latched on to these new leagues and to fill their schedules during the summer now the numbers aren't incredibly strong um, last season you saw some Some interesting numbers when you had Lonzo Ball, but that was you know kind of more of a TMZ-driven sort of uh, interest. But uh, this season, I mean, you're talking around the the 200,000 to 300,000 viewer range, which is not incredibly strong. But during the summer, you know, I'm sure they'll take it.
1: And do you think it's a different audience watching the NBA and the basketball summer leagues that would be watching the um, Major League Baseball?
2: It's all sports fans in that case Um, for the summer league. You might get those really hardcore NBA fans or people that are just flipping through. So if it's, you know, uh, at a bar, you're typically going to see what's on ESPN. And if it's the Summer League or if it's the Basketball League or one of these big three competitions on uh, Fox Sports, you know, people will watch whatever's on. Exactly.
0: So, uh, Austin, what what are you looking at? What are you following here uh, over the next few months?
2: It's, it's getting the football season, and, you know, we've talked about the last two years. NFL regular season viewership is down around 17 18%. Is that going to continue? Are, are people going to continue to go away, and what are the causes of it? I mean, a lot of people have blamed, you know, political reasons for the decline in NFL viewership. I haven't really seen too much empirical evidence to support that. It's more people switching away from, you know, sw- just watching less TV in general and watching more on-demand sort of programming, and also, you know, the NFL possibly having a problem with tonnage—like having too many games. You have Sunday afternoons, Monday nights, Thursday nights, and sometimes even Saturdays during December. It's just—are there too many NFL windows?
0: And and the other question, because we talked about it early in the show, and I'll just ask your opinion: the anthem issue. Does that does that impact ratings?
2: You know, I we're start, we're starting to see more polls come out. People saying, "Yo, yeah, oh, I, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to talk about it." And it's all any, anybody is talking about it at this point. So we'll see. Like you know, are less, are fewer people going to be watching the NFL? You know, after a 17 percent drop, you figure maybe this season, maybe it does go back up a bit. But uh, if we saw another 10 percent drop, then you, you have to consider that some of these uh, you know political leaning sort of things are creeping into the numbers.
0: Well, Austin, uh, thank you very much for your time and for all of your insight in soccer, baseball, NBA, and NFL. We, we just about covered all the leagues. We'll get the NHL next time. Um, <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Uh, we need to take a short break, but stay with us. When we get back, we will talk to Tony Punturo, uh, former, former executive at Anheuser-Busch and currently with Turnkey Sports Entertainment. Welcome back. This is the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, George Perry, with my co-host, Michelle Young. We just got off the phone with Austin Karp of the Sports Business Journal, and we are going to jump right into our next guest. We're very excited to bring on the show. Uh, Our next guest is Tony Panturo. Tony Panturo spent... 26 years at Anheuser-Busch, serving as the vice president of global media, sports, and entertainment marketing for 17 of those years. He also served on the, AB Bush, uh, the, the Anheuser-Busch Strategy Committee, representing the top 15 executives of the company. He is currently an EVP of strategy at Turnkey Intelligence, um, doing some exciting stuff with Turnkey Intelligence, which we will talk about as well. Tony, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, George. How you doing? Michelle, how are you? I'm great. Can you take us back a little bit and talk about your background and how you got into the sports and entertainment industry?
3: Sure. Um, well, I I was uh, north-central New Jersey growing up, went to Villanova, which it's not quite Wharton and, and Penn, but at least it's up the street of the area. But we're, we're sort of proud alumni up there. Um, we at least know how to play basketball. I know that. So uh, – and then I – I started as an NBC page uh, right after graduation, and worked at 30 Rock here in New York, where I live now. And gave tours of the studio, and worked the first Saturday Night Lives, sort of to date me a little bit. And then worked with advertising agencies um, on the media side. And and then Anheuser Bush happened to be my client at one point And and at the sort of age of 30, they they either saw something or or whatever, and they offered me a job to be director of media at Anheuser-Busch. And I always tell people that it wasn't the big, large company that we probably all know today. Back then, this was the end of 82. There was three brands, Budweiser, Michelob, and Bush. And Bush was a regional brand. It really wasn't even fully national, with about a 24 market share. And our competitor Miller Brewing, which was owned by Philip Morris at the time, had 23. And August Bush III, our CEO, decided we were going to become aggressive marketers and needed some young people to take the ride. And off we went.
0: And so, if you could, Tony, just uh, tell us a little bit. A little, okay, so now you've, I guess, you've made the move to St. Louis at that point. And, and and how did how did your job begin and how did it evolve over time?
3: Well, the one thing that – yes, I did move to St. Louis, and the one thing that our leadership felt was that August Bush wanted people sort of in control of sort of the – I'll call it the money and the potential assets, the sponsorship assets that we would ultimately buy. He felt that it's very competitive – not that it isn't today, but it was very competitive – for one beer company to have exclusivity in a property, so whether it was um the Super Bowl or it was you know the Philadelphia Phillies or it was the New York Yankees, you know beers were looking to to be the only voice only marketing voice of these teams, and so you needed to sort of consolidate those brand dollars. And go out and, you know, with a strategy and acquire these assets to communicate to the consumer the message for our brands. And so, so I was fortunate to be there at, its, at sort of a, a, a new time, uh, and, and so we were uh, sort of positioned, orchestrated, directed, if you will, to go out and start, you know, acquiring – Assets that were strategic to the beer consumer, and that we would have a strong position, and in some cases be the only beer in the property. And for through the 80s, we had acquired 90% of every professional local team in the country. So across Major League Baseball, the NFL, National Football League, uh, NBA, and 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 then we also started doing official. Sponsorships of NASCAR and the Olympics and and Major League Baseball, et cetera, and so those were the platforms that that enabled us to grow our business. Bud Light was introduced in 1985, and and then we started having more brands, and uh, and our business you know, grew over time.
1: Now that's that's a lot of time to cover, but I'd love to hear a couple of examples of, you know, your favorite stories or your most successful um, acquisitions during that time?
3: Well, the the, the one that, you know, there, there's many probably things I'm proud of, but one was that we, we came up with something from a creative standpoint, I can't take credit for it, uh, which was called the Bud Bowl. And it was at a time where we would create advertising where the Budweiser bottles would play the Bud Light bottles. And it was very different and unique. And so at this point, which was the late 80s, there wasn't exclusivity on the Super Bowl. There, you know, no beer had exclusivity. And so we went to NBC, which was the first network at the time. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Art Watson, who was president of NBC Sports, um, and, and their salespeople, and said, we want to uh, play this game, Bud Bowl, with creative on the Super Bowl, and we want to be the only beer. and um, And we bought five minutes of time, which is was sort of unheard of back then, sort of unheard of today. You know, ten, you know, five minutes of time, ten thirty second commercials. And back then, the the unit cost was about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Today, it's probably about five million dollars. But it really was this. Ownership. We had displays at retail around Bud Bowl. The creative was Bud Bowl. You know, everything we did for about a six-week period was themed around this this campaign. Um, and so it gave us a 20% lift in January right away. And then, and, and then we were able to maintain exclusivity in the Super Bowl for the next, you know, 20 years uh, from the time that I was there. And then, and and so that I'm proud of, mainly because it was, you know, the biggest. Media asset in our country, you know, at any one time, in the sense of its 100 million plus viewers, but it was also something that our competition many times tried to get their hands on, and we were successful, sort of, to do it. Um, you know, there's 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 things about you know we had a small relationship with Dale Earnhardt, the father. He never liked to be called the father. It was, he's Dale Earnhardt, her son was Dale Earnhardt Jr. And we had a fishing and hunting relationship, not a lot of money, but he got to know the company. And one of the things at Anheuser-Busch that that we used all the time, which started with Adolphus Bush, our founder, was making friends is our business. And it really gave us a tone of how to do business the right way, that... You know, you didn't want to be a bully. You didn't want to take your money and leverage it in a a strong way. But then at the end of the day, people could do business with whoever they wanted. And they ultimately, us as, you know, human beings want to do business, if we can, with the people that are good partners. And so when Dale Earnhardt Jr., when we just heard that he may be wanting to ride in the NASCAR series – we went to the father and said we want to be the sponsor, and and we ultimately worked out that deal. So by the time he announced it, where many sponsors wanted to sponsor him, we already had that. And one of the things, and 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 you know that that we saw is that you sort of don't wait sometimes for people to come to you or partners to come to you or a sports team if you see the vision of your of your strategy you know go go get it before you regret not getting it sort of sort of a sports analogy meeting the ball halfway so those are those are two things there's many more but uh... um, uh, but but those were you know one which was the most dominant i think sports property out there the second was just showing the initiative of locking something up before it even really becomes announced but being tied with somebody and having a good relationship and then taking the initiative to, to sort of go after
0: it. So you're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM Channel 132. Uh, George Perry here and Michelle Young. We're speaking with Tony Panturo. Um, we are trying to get a better line with him, Michelle. So, um, But, you know, he's got some great stories, and, and there's a reason that Tony Panturo is known by many people as a legend in the industry, and I, I'm looking forward to getting back online here.
1: Yeah, his story is really something. And those two examples—I mean, I'm sure he has a lot to share—but those are, those are great, <laughs> those are great examples. And of course, major, major names that we all know of.
0: Well, and you know, I wonder if I guess the Bud Bowl was the precursor to the uh, the Puppy Bowl or the what is it uh, the?
1: Right. in I- <laughs> five minutes—he's right though. Five yeah. minutes of time and you know all those commercials—that's unheard of at that time.
0: So Tony, I think you're back on air. We had a yeah, little connection yeah. problem. Excellent. Um, so you know, talk about or one of the things that that um, you know I've heard you talk about before is this idea to build an in-house full-service agency. So for our listeners, you know, most of these major companies have advertising agencies that you know, from Madison Avenue that make a lot of money developing commercials and buying TV and so on and so forth. But you guys had this concept of building an in-house agency. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, the, the concept behind it from, from, from again, our CEO, and, and we, we believed in it and then executed, was he wanted the communication and the leverage to be with one voice. That sometimes that you get at big corporations, there's to um, be too many channels of communication. There may be too many chefs in the kitchen, um, and things get sort of distorted and not, you know, it's not efficient. To necessarily go that way and so he believed that he was going to empower you know one person to lead the group um to to again leverage all these brand dollars now keep in mind we did that in about the end of 91 we're now spending four or five hundred million dollars in media and sports entertainment marketing a year so it was you know really you know large dollars with now multiple brands and and so It was about that one voice and that and that leverage of dollars and so whether we were talking to david stern at the time who was the commissioner of the nba or or mbc or uh, a sports team you know they knew you know that there was this sort of one-stop shop of people and we could leverage all of our assets all at one time and None of us at Anheuser-Busch were ever under contract, which I always thought was unique because a lot of corporations. As you get up, and and August used to say, you know, if I, you know, it's all about trust, and as long as you do the good work, and I trust you, you know, you'll be here a long time. If I if I don't trust you, um, then you probably won't. So I'm I'm always sort of proud that that I lasted those 26 years because the last 17 was running this. In house operations. So, uh, and what it did is also, so it was sort of the pleasant surprise was that it gave our brand teams uh, the creativity or the flexibility from the creative, because we did not do the creative commercial in house. So they could go to the George and Michelle Boutique Agency and, and say, we need some new ideas for Bud Light, and you could present those. And possibly win the business so so it gave you know flexibility on the creative side because we didn't need the full operation agency to do the work because we had 150 people doing the planning negotiation execution of all the assets that we own so we we were unique um, very few people followed which always surprised me a little bit and and sadly Currently, the MBEV company that owns Anheuser-Busch elected to disband that and go back to a more traditional agency model. So from 91 to probably about 2009, it it was this unique operation. But at that same period of time, we went from 24 market share to 50 market share. So I'm always very proud of of how that that worked for us, at least at, at that time for our company.
1: And those, those are really amazing numbers. And, of course, sports evolved and changed during that time, as did the media. Um, so can you talk to us and tell the audience about how you would measure success?
3: The success, well, you know, it, it's in some days, in some years, it was easy. I always say from 82 to about 91-ish, um, we, you know, we were growing in some cases a, a point and a half market share a year. Um, I know that our stock split seven to one over that period of time because, you know, not to get personal, but when I first went to Energizer Bush, I was given stock options. I didn't know what a stock option was until they split seven to one, and then I knew what a stock option was really quickly. <laughs> uh, but, um, but you know, so we were seeing the returns, you know, uh, in the sales. It was, it was so evident that you know now over time and one of the you know i'm a big believer as george knows i mean it's interesting because metrics and analytics and data are more and more important today because of all the choice but but i also feel that and i think it was peter drucker who may have said this i think i'm giving the right credit is human observation is data and so you want the balance you know and so so we could watch so if we bought you know the uh St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, this may be too obvious, because St. Louis, but you could use any team. And then we could see, and uh, we would do neons for bars and restaurants, and pocket schedules and posters and other, you know, retail displays, you know. And if the wholesaler, who actually, ha- we would, we have to have to buy the material. You know, we would obviously buy the the team asset. We would create the the, the material to put into the marketplace. But we could get a lot of measurement on how the wholesaler who was really moving it in the market was using the material, which would give us a big barometer. We had other, you know, analytic metrics as well. But I always felt that that was really very keen because it, you know, the person in the in the market, um, uh, I remember we used to have what we called a wholesaler panel, which would rotate with wholesalers across the country. It was about 20 Every year, and they would give us feedback, so it was a good way to understand you know, what was going on in Des Moines, Idaho, or you know Chicago or whatever, as you sat in St Louis, and we were first looking at the UFC, which was just, at this point was just starting to like become legitimate, and in fact, they really were talking to us because if they got a sort of blue ribbon sponsor, it would help legitimize their sport. So we spent time with them, and we wanted to get some feedback from our wholesalers. So I brought it up in a meeting, and they said, you know, very candidly, that you know, we can tell you a few things that you could cancel if you want, but we we think UFC is where we need to be to sell beer. And if you then went back and looked at ESPN polls and other metrics, you would see against the male 21 to 34, it just had very high queues of 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 someone who was a beer drinker. I mean it came right after football. It was sort of NFL football, college football and then UFC. You know, and this was when it's early days, not what it is really today. I mean this was probably 2006, 7. So you so we had all those, you know, real metrics, the actual sales results and then, you know, the what I'll call the human observation uh data point as well, which was really your retail system who are in the market every day, who have a pretty good judge of what's going on. So it's always a balance, right, I think, in business. If you slant any which way too much, you get a little distorted. So how we found that balance was important. It's also a lot of business people, you know, we had brand managers. I was cared kid that I survived 18 Budweiser brand managers in my 26 years as they went through the system. And every once in a while, someone with not a lot of, more of a, I didn't we say, well, I don't think we should be in this sport anymore, you know, um, and I won't pick one out just to be not to be negative. And we said, well, before you make that decision, have you you know, have you been to to a game? Have you been to an event? No, I really haven't. But let's go. And so we would go to the event so they could really see the consumer and the game and the intensity and a lot of, you know, and, and then all of a sudden they would look at you and go, yeah, I guess we should be here, right? You know, so. So it's so it is that balance of of and make sure you touch these assets as much as sit back in a corner office and try to uh, make an assessment of them as well.
0: And and uh, you know that's that whole answer right there, Tony, just points out how important how this is more more of a science than people think that that they're. Uh, you can't just go out and spend a lot of money on, for for any company on sponsorships if you're not really thinking about why you're doing it and, and how you're going to measure success. And and back in your day, I mean, that was, you know, back back in those days, that was kind of a new concept. Um, and I think that's becoming more and more accepted now, which kind of gets us to what you're doing now. Now, I'm skipping a whole part of your career where you did Broadway shows, and we'd love to have you on another uh, another show to talk about that, but but I really want to talk just a little bit about what you're doing today with Turnkey, where you're, you've launched a brand consulting arm, uh, you know, and why why are you doing that, and what what's your thoughts on that uh, off the bat here?
3: Yeah, you know, it it, I, it started out, uh, you know, Len Perna, who's the owner and founder of of Turnkey, uh, you know, we we've been friends for since his days, really, with the Detroit Red Wings and and before he started this business, and and we we I actually wrote a, an op-ed piece for Sports Business Journal, which I don't really, well, I've never done Be very matter of fact, and, and I won't particularly say I'm that great of a writer, but it was about, I didn't feel that, that people were being developed well enough and there wasn't really good cultures going on. This was a personal opinion. So Len and I sat down and, and it started with executive coaching, and, and so where I would sit down and still do. With executives um, and sort of talk about the process of their own careers, but how do they create a positive environment within their divisions of, the, of which they operate? And then, as I started to get exposed to Turnkey Intelligence, so that so Turnkey made up of uh, executive search arm as well as this intelligent data arm. So, and what was very smart of Len when he first started the company is he really started both both channels at the same time. I, I, my sense, although I've never asked him, as he said. Sports will need good executives, and they'll need good data to support their decisions. And so he set up both at the same time. Um, but what I felt, and as I sat in meetings, almost just as a, a friend of the family at first, was that there was a consulting strategy opportunity that you could have all the data you want, but it, but it, numbers can just be numbers. But if they weren't connected to, you know, a strategy and 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 connecting to the consumer then they were sort of out there on their own. And so from that, we decided to uh, start this consulting strategy arm. Um, and, and we're sort of seeing already that there's so much, as you all know, and I'm sure you've talked throughout the weeks of the show, there's so much going on out there. There's so much choice, the technology explosion. And so for, for a, an advertiser to keep up with all that, it's, you know, it's, it's it takes a lot. And sometimes they get off track respectfully on, well, oh, wait a minute. I think I forgot who my customer is and what's my strategy to reach that customer and with what asset. You know, there, Antonio, the, there, there was a time in business, and I lived it, you know, probably particularly in the mid to late 80s.
0: Tony, I, I hate to interrupt. Unfortunately, sure. we are at the end of the show. so. We would love to have you back on again to talk a little bit more about what Turnkey's doing and appreciate you giving us all of this great background. Sure, not at all. Sorry. You've been listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM 132. Please join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. For Michelle Young, this is George Perry, and we'll see you next week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.